great. Well, I think you guys are familiar with the scene, right? There's tons of commotion. The people are excited. They have been under oppression for a very long time. Foreign dominator has oppressed them. And the beloved city, Jerusalem, is essentially a city that's practically under siege with soldiers everywhere. And the people are longing for a deliverer. So just place yourself in that moment as a deliverer comes, riding on his saddle, coming up the, to the gates of Jerusalem, and everyone starts shouting Hosanna, and they throw their cl- cloaks, and they wave their palms, and this is the moment. Of course, I'm talking about what? No, I'm not talking about Palm Sunday. I'm talking about the entrance of Judas Maccabeus into Jerusalem in 164 B.C. Two, I know. See, Heidi's like, of course, I should have known that. 200 years before Jesus entered in, Judas Maccabeus entered into Jerusalem. Who's Judas Maccabeus? He was a Jew at the time when the Syrians were dominating the Israelites. The Syrians owned Jerusalem, and they were in there, and they were in the capital city. And at this time, it was a time of deep oppression, and the people were crying out. And amongst them, among them, one, a Jew rose up, Judas. He was called Judas Maccabeus. Maccabee is the word for hammer. He was called the hammer. And he came in, and, and everyone, when he, was, he came, according to the, to the stories, as he came towards the great city, the people did exactly what I said. Cloaks, palm trees, because this is deliverance. Finally, we're going to be rid of the oppressor, and we're going to be in charge. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. History tells us that what was after Judas came in and, and defeated the Syrians, a 100-year reign of, of the Jews over themselves. They were independent for 100 years for the first time in a very long time, going all the way back to the days of Solomon and David. It was a glorious time, but it didn't last. Sure enough, we know who came in after, right? The Romans. And for the last 100 years after the, Jew, the Maccabean dynasty, The Romans have been dominating. And once again, Israel is in the same place. And so then, 100 years later, 200 years after Judas, another scene. More commotion. More cloaks. More palms. Same exact scene reenacted. But this time, instead of a hammer, the Prince of Peace is making his way to Jerusalem. The people are looking for a hammer. But instead, they're going to get someone very different than they expect. And that's true for us at times as well. We're in a sermon series on the Gospel of Mark. And if you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to turn there now to Mark chapter 11. We've been following through the story of of Jesus. And we've come now to a very important moment in his life and in the life of the nation of Israel. He's making his way into Jerusalem. I've entitled my sermon this morning, Make Way for the King. The people of Israel that day, as you know the story, it's obviously Palm Sunday, we know the story. They made a way for Jesus, all right, but it won't last for very long. Are we going to make a way for Jesus in whatever way he comes to us today? What does it even mean to make a way for Jesus? I'll talk about that. We're in Mark chapter 11, right at the top here, starting in verse 1. The very familiar story of Palm Sunday. 
Oh, by the way, I, I forgot to mention, um, that great victory of Judas Maccabeus, uh, that's still remembered today by the Jews in the holiday Hanukkah. That's what Hanukkah is all about, is that first great one. But we're thinking of a different holiday, Palm Sunday. So let's read about it. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you. And just as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one's ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you doing this? We'll just say the Lord needs it. And we'll send it back here shortly. So they went, found a colt outside in the street, tied in a doorway. And as they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? And they answered as Jesus had told them, and the people let him go. When they brought the colt to Jesus... And threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. And many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread their branches that they'd cut in the fields. And those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest heaven! Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Okay, again, very familiar story. What can, what can we learn anew here? Well, first of all, just in context, this begins, this passage here this morning begins the third part of Mark's gospel. I've mentioned this before. It's probably the last time, though I will. There are three parts to Mark's gospel. They're very clearly delineated. The first seven-plus chapters is all about Jesus up in Galilee doing miracles, showing himself through his actions to be the Messiah, although he's not claiming it just yet. Keeps telling people to be quiet, be quiet. Hide the information. Because it's not time yet. Second part, 8 through 10, was Jesus journeying, making his way to Jerusalem and preparing the disciples for what's going to happen when they get there, which they don't quite understand. It's hidden from them. They don't quite get it yet. And now, starting with chapter 11 to the rest of the book, is the third part, Jesus in Jerusalem. He's coming now to accomplish what the Father has sent him to do. It's Sunday. It's Sunday. And it is now the last week of Jesus' life. This is such an important event, this, this entrance of Jesus. All four Gospels recorded in detail, which is a rare thing. It's an absolutely epic moment in Jesus' life. Why? Well, let's take a look at why. Well, first of all, we find out that as they came up Jerusalem, if you remember, I've been showing you that, that picture of they're in Jericho and they go up to Jerusalem and it's a really high, you know, 2,500 foot rise and, and this walk and, and you make your way up and, and finally as they're approaching Jerusalem, kind of the last stop are Bethphage and Bethany. Be, by the way, my Bible software pronounced it Bethphage, that's why I'm saying it that way. It seems weird to say it that way, but that's how they pronounce it, so that's what I'm saying. Anyway, they came to Bethphage and Bethany, these two villages on the Mount of Olives. Now, as you would make your way from Jericho up to, Ju up to Jerusalem, you actually don't see Jerusalem. The reason is because the Mount of Olives coming from this direction is in front of Mount Zion. And the Mount of Olives is higher than Mount Zion. You actually don't see Jerusalem. You don't see Jerusalem, and it's pretty dramatic until you go up the Mount of Olives, and at the top of the Mount of Olives are the two villages right next to each other, Bethphage and Bethany. And as you crest the Mount Olive, all of a sudden, boom, there's Jerusalem right in front of you, the golden city. And I'm telling you, it is a spectacular view. 
I took this picture when, when we got up to the top. This was out, you know, out of the, the bus as we're driving on the road, just cresting the Mount, uh, Mount of Olives. It's an amazing view. And all of us, and it's gold. It's like it, it. It's like it's bright. And you've been in the desert, going through just nothing. And all of a sudden, you you crest this hill, and poof, it's awesome. It really is. Those of us who'll be going on the trip next year to, to Israel, you know, we'll we'll be able to see, get that experience, and it's really something. Uh, just a quick note, by the way. Today's the last day for those who signed up on the early interest list for the Israel trip to sign up. Uh, before anybody else gets a chance to do so. And there still are a few slots left, not many, but there's a few slots left. Starting tomorrow, if you go to our website, click on events, click on the Israel trip, there'll be a link available to register for the trip. So there are a few slots available, and, and you could do that tomorrow if you want to. Um, and, but if you can't make it next year, I hope someday you can, because what, it's just an amazing experience to come up and all of a sudden see it. The Mount of Olives is about 200 feet higher than Mount Zion, and so that's why you can look down upon it. I want to show you the reverse view when you're in Jerusalem and you look back towards... Uh, can we show that, please? The reverse view when you look back towards the... the you, this is what the Mount of Olives looks like, looking from Jerusalem up to the Mount of Olives. And uh, just a couple things here. This is There's a valley in between... From the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem, there's a valley. It's called the Kidron Valley. And there's about, it's about a two-mile walk between the two. The two cities, by the way, Bethany and Bethphagi, ancient B&B, I guess you could say, uh, they're about a mile apart. And uh, Bethphagi is pretty obscure. Bethany, you should know, very familiar. That's the village where Jesus' good friends, Mary, Martha, Lazarus, live. He'd been there many times. And so this is the view looking back. The one thing I want you to see, and unfortunately in my picture you can't really tell, but all of this right here, which is the side of the hill of the Mount of Olives, if you could come close, you'd see there are a bunch of little white dots. These are all white dots. Do you know what they are? They're gravestones. This is the world's largest Jewish cemetery. Why is it there on the Mount of Olives? The reason it's there is because of a prophecy in the book of Zechariah. Take a look at this prophecy from the prophet Zechariah. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights on a day of battle. On that day, this is the final judgment day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem. And the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley, with half the mountain moving north and half moving south, making a way for the king. And on that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem, half of it to the east of the Dead Sea, half of it to the west of the Mediterranean Sea, in summer and in winter. And the Lord will be king over the whole earth. And on that day, there will be one Lord, and his name the only name, amen? The people of Israel believe that prophecy. And so even today, they're buried on Mount of Olives because they believe in resurrection. And that on the day the Lord returns, the dead will rise. And they want to be right there with the resurrected Lord when he arises, right with him physically. It's, it's a fortune, by the way, to, to be buried there, as you can imagine. And yet people do it because they believe that. Now, let me show you one other picture. 
This is looking back at Jerusalem again. Take a look at this. This is the eastern gate. Supposedly, when the king returns in that later date, he's going to come through this gate. You could tell it doesn't look very open, does it? It's all bricked up. Now, well, who did that? Well, there's other white dots in front of that gate, which you can't see very well. Do you know what those are? Muslim graves. Because Jerusalem is a holy city to them as well. And they know the prophecy. And so just to be sure, safe, they want to guard the gate. They don't want to let the Jewish king come in and take it. So just think about these are people, even in our day, who believe the prophecy. Can you imagine how much the prophecies were believed in in Jesus' day, closer to the prophecy? And what we find is they really did believe it. Luke gives us a, a, a little insight that Mark doesn't give us uh, a little insight on just before Jesus got to where he is right now in Bethany. Take a look at this from the Gospel of Luke. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem. And the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. The people think the king is here, Zechariah 14 day, the hammer, the hammer's here. And he's going to go in and smash those Romans. They're believing it. Now, the commentators are all over the place. There's quite a few commentators who believe the most. No, as we read first century Jewish, thinking, no, they weren't expecting the kingdom. But we know that there were a whole group that were. And Luke certainly tells us that there were. So there's a whole group who are skeptical, but there's a whole group who are expecting Jesus as the king. He's the Messiah, and he's going to get it done. We need to remember, he's in Bethany. Lazarus lives in Bethany. I shared this a few weeks ago. What has just recently happened? Even though Mark doesn't tell us, what do we know just recently happened? Right before this whole moment we're running into in Mark 11, Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. The dead. Now, Bethany is a village the size of Terraville, where I live. There's not a lot of people in Terraville. If someone rises from the dead, and, and you know, it's not the ancient, not modern world, people live their whole life in that village. Everyone knows Lazarus. He's the Messiah, obviously. This is the time. They're excited. They are excited. This is a massively important time for the people of Israel, and the buzz around Jesus is huge. So let's see what happens. So they approached Jerusalem, they came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, and Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one's ever ridden, untie it and bring it here. So he sends these two disciples on ahead. It's interesting, Jesus is always sending two. You know, we're not meant to work by ourselves. <laughs> just a quick little application there. Who are you working with in the ministry of the kingdom? Anyways, he sends two and he goes, go find a colt. The word colt there in Greek is polos. And, um, and it usually means just a young animal of any kind. When it's not denominated, it normally means a horse. But both Matthew and John in their Gospels clearly tell us that it's a donkey. It's a donkey that's never been ridden on. And of course, that's an important point prophetically as well, as many of you are familiar with this. Also in the book of Zechariah, such an important prophetic book. In Zechariah, we read this about the coming king. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king is coming to you. 
righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, that's exactly what happens here. And we're, they're taking pains to show that Jesus is fulfilling prophecy. But as I read that from a 21st century perspective, I'm like, a donkey doesn't intimidate me a whole lot. You know, and Judas Maccabeus, you know, as far as we know, was on a war horse. You know, that's kind of what I'm expecting. What's this donkey talk stuff? Well, in the first century, they saw things differently. In my NIV archaeological study Bible, it had some notes about the significance of this. Just three quick things. The donkey was a traditional mount for kings and rulers in the ancient Near East. In other words, by sitting on that donkey, Jesus is claiming to be king. Jesus has never ridden into Jerusalem before. Like any other pilgrim, he would have walked into Jerusalem. He is, he is intentionally publicly stating, I am the king by getting on that colt. Number two, riding on a donkey at Passover, which is when the time of year it is, is part of the messianic expectation. So he's, once again, he's been telling everyone to be quiet, be quiet. Now he's saying, I'm the Messiah. And finally, the donkey is a symbol of peace, not war. So Jesus is claiming to be the Prince of Peace. All of this are things that he has been telling people to be quiet about. Yeah, if you've noticed, if you've tracked the first 10 chapters, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. He does things and see. All of a sudden, he's all out there. The time of unveiling who Jesus really is has come. It's time. Now's the time. And he sets the plan in motion. And that's what we have to understand is there's a plan here. Look how he says to them, right? Go to the village ahead of you. As you enter, you're going to find a cult. No one's ever ridden. Untied. If anyone asks you, he, he tells them exactly what's going to happen, and then it happens. There's a plan in place here. And that's what really kind of blows my mind. None of this is happening by chance. And he says, you know, when I, when I read this, and I'm always like, well, if someone just walked up to me, you know, a cult or a donkey in the ancient world is like your car, right? Have you ever thought about that? Like somebody just walks up and I, I'm going to take your car. Like, uh, I don't think so, right? What do you mean you're taking my cult? What's that all about? But remember, when he says, listen, if someone asks you that, just say the Lord needs it. Everyone knows who the Lord is, like I just said with Lazarus, right? Everyone knows who the Lord is. Oh, the guy who raised Lazarus? Oh, yeah, what does he need? Actually, if he's going to be the king, which we think he is, well, I want to be the one to say, yeah, it was my donkey he was right. Go ahead, take it. So again, we need to get in the story to recognize that that wouldn't be so unusual because of all that's been happening in Bethany. But the thing, again, that's really striking me here is that all this is intentional. Now, I've always read this on my own as this is just an example of Jesus' supernatural knowledge, right? He knows there's gonna, you're going to go and, oh, yeah, this is what you're going to run and, and say this and you'll be fine. Like, wow, he knows that ahead of time. That's awesome. I was sort of surprised to find that the vast majority of commentators believe this is not supernatural knowledge. Jesus has been Bethany so many times. He would prearranged all this, and he's just telling his disciples, I already got it all planned. How many of you like to plan for your vacations, right? You got stuff already planned out. So many commentators say, actually, Jesus had just made the arrangements ahead of time. He's just telling disciples, do what I've told you to do. And so I, at first I got upset about that. I was like, well, no, no, you're, you know, I, I, I like thinking of it as Jesus is supernaturally knows what's going to happen. I think it's both. But here's the bottom line. 
it doesn't matter in the end. Because what's important is not, you know, is this supernatural or not? What's important is that it's planned. There is a blueprint. There is a project management plan that the Father has in mind. And Jesus is executing the plan that's going to lead to his execution. Did you follow that? He's executing the plan that's going to lead to his execution. I don't know if I would follow a plan that's going to lead to my execution. And it's a moment in which we marvel at the the obedience of the Son. And I was thinking about this in worship as a father. When my sons trust me enough to obey me, even when it doesn't make sense, or even when it means difficulty for them, and they and they and they walk in that faith. Is there anything for, as a parent that's more that, that warms your heart more than that? That your children trust you. The son, he's such a submissive, obedient son. Even when the plan means pain for him, he's executing the pain, the, the plan, the plan that's going to lead to his pain. That blows me away. It's a note of marvel that we should we should not miss. So my first point this morning is just simply that. Jesus intentionally embraces his kingdom calling. You know, I've said many times, in my own opinion, Ephesians 2.10, and this is the class I'm teaching on Wednesday night, is God has, has created us before the beginning of time for an eternal purpose in his kingdom. And for many of us, like the people I prayed for before the sermon, it might mean putting ourselves in some very... Scary places that we don't want to go to. Will we trust the Father? That's what David was praying about at the end of worship. Will we trust the Father? That's what Jesus did. He intentionally goes there. I was listening to a, uh, an old, I was watching actually an old 1980s interview with uh, William F. Buckley. You guys remember that guy? And he was interviewing Mother Teresa. Such an interesting clash of cultures there. <laughs> but anyways, it was an interesting interview. And of course, he introduces her as, you know, a woman who's known for, for, for taking care of the pain and the, the suffering of the world and those who are just in so much trouble. And, and so after he lauds her, his very first question is, so why does God allow pain and suffering in the first place? I'm like, wow, he goes right to the jugular. And her answer was not what I think Americans would answer. I would give a C.S. Lewis kind of answer. Well, somehow God uses the pain and something like that. That's not, she gave more of an Eastern, very different, probably coming from deep poverty answer. Her answer was interesting. She said, she said, well, he allows suffering so we can join him in his suffering. And like, we don't even, Western minds don't even understand. What are you talking about? And she said, there is, there is a depth of intimacy with God found in suffering that isn't found anywhere else. So he allows it so that we can have the privilege of the gift of joining him in his suffering. And I was like, wow. And so William F. Buckley didn't buy that. And so then he came after, he goes, yeah, but wait a minute, big difference here. J joining him in his suffering, 
our suffering isn't voluntary. His was. And he was bringing it uh, like, you know, it's worse for us. But in that moment, I just wanted to stop and go, but Buckley, and, I, and Mother Teresa gave a good answer, but my thought was, actually, you're bringing out what's so amazing about Jesus. He knows what's before him. He's going to be on the cross with the sin of the world upon him. He's going to be separated from his father. At least some think that theologically. We can't say that definitively. But most likely that's true. The bottom line, he's going to suffer eternal judgment for every single human being. We can't even get our minds around the suffering of Christ. And he intentionally walks into it. You know, when I was studying this point this week, I just had to stop. And an old song we used to sing in the 90s came to me. Amazing love, oh, what sacrifice. Sing it with me. The Son of God given for me. My debt he pays. And my death he dies, that I might live, that I might live. Lord, we thank you. You intentionally walk in this plan. You're executing it every step of the way. You don't modify it. You don't change it. Oh, Lord, you are worthy to be followed. Help us to follow you, Lord, and walk in your footsteps by the power of your Holy Spirit at work in us. In Jesus' name. Well, in this moment of obedience, as he's executing the plan, let's just see how the plan works out. Verse 7. So they bring the cult to him, And they throw their cloaks over it, and he sat on it. And then many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they'd cut in the fields. Let's just stop there for a minute. We got two sets of cloaks. The first set of cloaks are used for utilitarian purposes, practical purposes. This colt's never been ridden on. He needs some kind of a saddle. So they they throw their cloaks, and and the disciples do. And it's it's just for practical purposes for the king to, to make it a worthy ride for him. But then these other people have cloaks. As he goes down the Kidron Valley and as he's making his way to the great holy city, they lay their cloaks. And this is not practical, right? You don't lay your cloaks on the muddy streets. That's the last thing you do. You're, 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 and it doesn't, the cult doesn't need these, cult, these uh, cloaks, right? The road is fine. But they throw them out of homage. They are giving the red carpet to Jesus. They believe he's the king who's coming to set them free. And they're excited and it says that they, they, they throw branches down. Other gospels say they wave the branches. John says they wave palm branches. Now, palm branches aren't indigenous to Jerusalem. There aren't any palm branches in Jerusalem. But this is Passover. And Passover is a time of deliverance. It's a time of remembering when there was victory for the oppressed people. And so what they would do is they would import palms from where? The city of palms, which I talked about two weeks ago. Jericho. And they would bring the palms up from Jericho and give them to the people and they would wave the palms and the symbolism is huge. The palm at this point in Israel's nation is the symbol 
of the nation, just like the eagle represents the United States, the palm represented Israel in the first century. Why? Because it was what Ju Judas Maccabeus's family seal was. It was the seal of victory. It was the seal of righteousness. It was the seal of hope. And so waving these, these branches and, and these palm branches and throwing before Jesus is a way of saying, we believe that that time has come in Jesus. And along with that, they're singing these songs, right? Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. It's Hosanna in the highest heaven. The first verse, verse 9, comes from Psalm 118. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Psalm 118 is a psalm, is a messianic psalm that speaks about the coming of the Messiah. And at Passover time, the people of Israel would, every single year, they would sing Psalm 118 out loud. But this year, they've added a word that's not in Psalm 118, and that's verse 10. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. That's not in Psalm 118. That's added. Why? Because even though they've been saying this song and singing it every Passover, this Passover is different because here's the king, and he's the son of David, the one who was promised to come and finally bring the victory to be the hammer. It's hammer time in Jerusalem. Hammer time. That's dated reference now too, isn't it? I had to throw it out there though. It's resurrection time. He just resurrected or resuscitated, I guess I should say, Lazarus. This is the time. It's our time. Victory. Yes, things are going our way now. The people are ecstatic, and they are making it known. But the king that they're lauding today, they're going to crucify by the end of the week. And that's our second point here in regards to these crowds. The people prepare the way for the king they want. And I think we do that too, don't we? We want the hammer. <laughs> we want God to make things the way we want it to be. And then when it's not, yeah, you know where I'm going there. Unfortunately, Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He's not coming as the hammer, at least not now. But this is who the people expect him to be. This is who they want him to be. This is what they're cheering about. So they're making a way for Jesus, but they're missing him at the same time. And the thing is, is Jesus is not buying into all the adulation. He's not buying into it. Once again, Luke gives us an additional detail that Mark doesn't give us for some reason. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. And then he goes on to discuss how it's going to be destroyed, and that, that happens in 70 AD, a few decades later. But I think it's so interesting. Just imagine, all the people are celebrating, and Jesus is crying. They're making a way for him, but they're missing him. They're missing his heart. He's weeping because they don't get it. They're missing this moment. They're going to reject him. Notice it's hidden from your eyes. It's hidden. Their eyes, their eyes can't see it. They need a different set of eyes. The kind of eyes that caused the Roman uh, 
centurion earlier in the gospel to say, come heal my son and you don't even have to be present. And Jesus said, wow, I haven't seen that kind of faith. He's got eyes. A Roman centurion. And yet here are the Jewish people and they're missing it. It's so sad. And I love the fact that, you know, someone corrected me and said, Andre, you've said multiple times that Jesus reacts to the disciples like, you know, uh, back to the future, hello, McFly. And, she got, and they said, I'm not sure you're right about that. Now, it does say Jesus got indignant with his disciples and said, do you still not understand? But the hello, McFly is almost insulting. He does, never insults them. He weeps over them. He, he's sad that they're missing. And I just wonder, you know, Dave said something in the worship and then even Paul said something talking about the men's retreat. It's, it's, we can be full of Christian doctrine and totally miss the heart of God. And I fear that many of us, me included, I, I'm full of Christian doctrine, yet I'm believing the lies and I'm not entering into the full life. And I think the Lord weeps over those moments. Listen, he loves you so much that he sent his son to die and suffer. He loves you. And he requires you to do nothing more than to open your heart to him. Confess your sin. Admit you need him. Oh, how he weeps over Jerusalem. Well, he comes into Jerusalem, and then finally, verse 11, he entered, and then he went into the temple courts. And he looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The estimates are there's probably about a million people coming up to Jerusalem at Passover time. Next week, I'm going to show you lots of pictures of the temple. It's amazing. And you're going to see the size of Jerusalem. It can't hold a million people, so everyone can't stay there. People would come, do the services, and then they would go other places to stay. And so Jesus is no exception. Going to Bethany with the 12, probably Mary and Martha's house with Lazarus, most likely. We don't know. He's going to do that every night. But for now, all we read, we don't, we're not told a whole lot about what he does. All we're told is that he looks around at everything. He doesn't really do anything. He just comes in, looks around. As you'll see next week, the, the Herodian temple complex was a marvel of the ancient world. And most people walked in and went, oh, whoa. Kind of the way, you know, people do when they see New York City for the first time. Oh, my God. I remember seeing New York the first time. I was blown away, right? Or the Grand Canyon for the first time. You're like, oh. Well, that's how people reacted to Herod's temple. Whoa, look at this place. Jesus is no gawking tourist. And he's not even a worshiping pilgrim just coming up and going through the religious motions. He comes as the authoritative Lord and King. And he looks around, and we'll find out next week what he thinks about what he sees. The bottom line is Jesus is seeing things totally differently than everybody else. He's seeing much deeper than just the external. And that's our third point this morning. The king sees differently than others. He sees different than others. And if we're going to make a way for Jesus, we need those kingdom eyes. Another old song used to sing, open the eyes of my heart, Lord, open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you high and lifted up. We can't see him 
with these eyes. We need, we need different set of eyes. You know, I started the sermon this morning with talking about Judas Maccabeus and how he came into Israel as the hammer, which is what everyone wants. As far as they can see, I can tell you, Lord, you know what? I don't need to hear your will because I know here's what you should do. And we all know what you should do. And in my life, I know, God, here's what you should do. And even in my prayers sometimes, my prayers are more directing God than requesting God. Lord, just do this in my son's life. Would you do this with my finances, Lord? And I, and I almost do it in a way like I know best. They wanted the hammer. But what came instead was the Prince of Peace. And really, it's an option between, is it going to be my way or his way? Will I submit and humble myself and trust that the Father's good? And that somehow, and I'm not saying we, there's no weeping or lamenting. Jesus is weeping and lamenting. But I'm saying it, but he's also ex- trusting his Father. Such a beautiful thing. Even in the midst of his weeping and lamenting, he's trusting his Father. He's going to weep in the Garden of Gethsemane too. Take this away. He's not being rebellious. He's right in it, fully, fully committed and in. Trusting. Which way is it going to be? How are we going to see life? To make a way for Jesus, we have to trust him. In the great Hebrews chapter 11, the chapter of all these people who live by faith under unbelievably difficult circumstances, the whole chapter begins with this verse. Say it with me. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance of what we do not see. I'd almost word it, faith is confidence in what we hope for and the ability to see what we do not see. In other words, it's a different kind of seeing, kingdom eyes, heavenly eyes, that know I have a Father who loves me and I can trust Him. Even when life is hard, even when I'm crying. A great example, I'll close with this, a wonderful example that I saw of this kind of seeing with kingdom eyes is many years ago when I was a young believer, I was given a little pamphlet called Christ Likeness by a navigator uh, guy. Navigator is a student organization that uh, reaches students for Christ on college campuses, a guy named Jim White, this little white booklet that the Navs used to have, and I don't know if you ever read that one, Paul, but anyways, and in there, uh, Jim talked about uh, the whole booklet was about Christ-likeness, walking in his spirit, by his spirit. What does it look like to walk in a different way in this world than typical people would? He told a story in there of, he said one time they were going to be holding a student conference in Philadelphia for college students. And uh, so before the conference, Jim and another navigator guy flew out to Philadelphia to go check out the church that the conference was going to be in, like here, for instance. And so they got there, you know, the day before anybody was there, and, and the pastor let them in, and they just walked around the building. Okay, we could do class there, workshop there, you know, et cetera. And as they're doing that, they came into the sanctuary. And when they came into the sanctuary, they saw somebody for the first time. It was the custodian. And so they went up, and they introduced themselves to the custodian. They said, hi, how are you? And his answer, he turned to them and said very specifically, oh, I'm, I'm doing better than most. And they thought, that's an interesting answer to that question. So he says, well, are you married? He goes, yeah, I am, but my wife is pretty sick. Oh, really? What's the matter with her? Well, she's in a mental, mental institution. Yeah. And, and, he, they, 
and he could tell the quizzical look on their faces, so he continued. He goes, well, you see, about a year ago, um, I was on the front steps of my apartment building in the city, and uh, my son was playing in the street, and a car came around the corner and hit him. And um, I ran out to my son, but I knew right away he was gone. And then I looked up, and I saw the driver still in his car, just crying uncontrollably and so I ran over to him and I tried to console him just then the police showed up and the police said to me who are you and I said I'm the boy's father and he said well what are you doing here with the driver and he said well you see officer it's going to sound like a coincidence to you but here's what my God did is last Sunday at our church the pastor gave an altar call all who wanted to trust in Jesus Christ for forgiveness of their sins and eternal life and Last Sunday night of all the nights, my son went forward and accepted Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. So you see, policemen, I know where my son is right now, and he's in a good place, but this man has real problems. And so he said, you know, I then went through all the emotions. I, I went into grief, but the Lord brought me through. Unfortunately, my wife wasn't able to come through. And she had a mental breakdown. It was so bad, she had to be institutionalized. And the cost of the institutionalism is so high, it's taking everything we own. And I have to work more than I was before, multiple jobs. And the bottom line is I couldn't take care of my daughter anymore. And someone told on the state that she wasn't being taken care of, and she ended up being taken from me. So now my day consists of waking up in the morning, going to my jobs, getting out late, going to the institute to see my wife, and then coming home, eating, doing laundry, and by then it's late, and I just go to bed, and it starts all over again. And Jim White said, can we pray for you? He said, I would love that. And he said, they started to pray, and he said, we couldn't even finish our prayer because we were so both encouraged, challenged, and blown away that this man who has all of this in front of him, could answer better than most when he was asked how he was. His circumstances are hard and he's crying. He's lamenting. But his father is giving him the grace that only the father could give to get through it. He's able to see with eyes that makes a way for the king even in the worst circumstance. So I don't know where we all are this morning. We all have our challenges. What kind of eyes are we seeing the world with? How are we going to respond today when someone cuts us off in traffic with kingdom eyes? How are we going to respond when we find out that we just lost everything in our 401k with kingdom eyes? How are we going to respond? The good news is it's not us. If we stay in sync with him, he will respond through us by his spirit. We just need to stay abiding. So, Father, I pray in Jesus' name for every person who's here right now. You know what they're going through, and I don't know if it's worse or better than the situation this custodian was going through. But it certainly does not compare to what you went through. And, Lord, Scripture tells us that you have set an example for us that we should follow in your steps. We can't do that, Lord. We will fail. 
But you said we will do even greater things than you when the Holy Spirit comes and fills us. So as we sing in worship, may it not just be a song in worship, but may it be the song of our life this week. Holy Spirit, you're welcome here. Come fill this place and fill the atmosphere. Lord, may we walk in light of your presence in all the circumstances of life. And when we do that, I think we'll experience your presence no matter where or what we go through. So help us to walk in your strength by the power of your Holy Spirit. We bless you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'd like prayer, we'd love to pray for you. Just come forward. Please know the Lord will walk with you through whatever you've got facing you this week. Amen.